Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 33 this morning. We're coming to a close with our journey through Exodus. And um, today we're in chapter 33. A couple weeks ago, uh, we sat down for staff meeting. We do this every Tuesday. And uh, we pick a passage to read, pray through, and then um, respond to by praying for our church. It's always a really sweet time. We do it every week. Uh, A few weeks ago, we were reading through Psalm 40. So Pastor Trent whips out his phone and he says, I'm going to play you guys a snippet of a song. The song is called 40, based on the song by a little band named U2. You ever heard of them? So have I. But in that room, nobody knew the song. And, like, I was particularly embarrassed and ashamed because I know more U2 than your average 20-something, okay? Because I have a dad who loves me and has taken me and exposed me to them and taken me to see them. And they're like top five concerts I've ever been to. And I'm a huge concert goer. So I was ashamed of myself in that moment that I didn't know the song. So today we're talking about uh, the sermon title, With or Without You. The, the, title, the chorus of that song says, Bono sings, I can't live with or without you you over and over again in the song. And I feel like sometimes when we read the Old Testament, especially the book of Exodus, we can see, and it wouldn't be too hard to say, hey, God has this kind of attitude. I can't live with you people. Last week we talked about the golden calf, and you can just feel that God's frustration and anger uh, towards towards the people of Israel. I cannot live with you people. But then somehow he always turns around, because his heart is gracious and kind, he always comes back and is merciful uh, to Israel and to us. But on the other hand, we live in a world where we very much, like if you really get down into it, we want God to be with us. But, on the other hand, we are without God a lot of the time. We're not with Him in return. And I think this passage kind of gets down to the heart of that issue, being with God. So I'm going to read the first six verses of chapter 33, and then we'll uh, work our way uh, through this chapter. So Exodus 33, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So... Here's what God is saying in those verses. He's saying a few things. I'm going to get you to the promised land. I'm going to defeat your enemies. I'm even going to send an angel to guide you there. But you don't get me. I will not be there with you. Why? Because if I go down there with you, I'm going to consume you. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to wipe you off. He said this in chapter 32 that like 
burning with anger. He's going to wipe Israel out and just start over with Moses because he is the only one who can remain faithful. Moses, thankfully, intercedes and God relents because he is merciful. But here we have again, God is saying, man, if I go down there with you, I'm going to consume you. So you're going to have to go without me and you don't get my presence in an intimate way. And Israel has, truthfully, the opportunity to run with that. To go ahead and take that deal and move on because they get every provision they'll ever need. Everything that they've been promised, a land, a nation, a victory, peace from their enemies, they've been promised this and they get that stuff, but they do not get God. But since we're talking about our story in Exodus, what does this look like for us? Well, it looks like us being happy with the things that God gives us but not having him in your life, forgetting about him. It looks like having a happy family, having a good home, and having a good job to support those two things. But when it comes to things of the Lord and to the Lord himself, we may notice him or we may not notice him because it's all about having a happy life. Like this is where we live in, not only in our area, but even in our country, our half of the world. It's all about that happy life. And if that is the ultimate goal, simple happiness, I don't think we're reaching nearly deep enough. Not reaching deep enough. The question is from this morning is, do you want God in your life? Do you want God in your life? And that is what is at stake for Israel in these verses, God's presence. And it's so interesting to me because Israel actually gets something right for a change uh, in these verses. It's uh, unexpected and crazy, but they get something right because God says, here's the deal. You get everything you've been promised, everything you're going to need. You're going to get safe passage to this land that I have set aside for you. You get to be a nation. You get freedom and peace, but you don't get me. You even get an angel, but you don't get me. And verse 4 says that this is bad news. They mourned when they heard this disastrous word. They mourned over this. And I, I think of a few uh, situations when I think of that. So when you have a, a baby who grows into a toddler to grows to a child, right? And they graduate from the crib to the bed, right? And thus begins the process of you training them to stay in the bed. And you know it's a big step for their, your child. You know it's a big step for them, but they don't realize how great that is until the moment that door shuts for the first time and they realize, okay, there are my toys over there in those cubbies. I got to go play with them. Out of the covers, boom, into that, right? Another situation I thought of, uh, you're in high school. It's finals week. You're in physics class taking the test. And the teacher, for some reason, decides to leave the room. I don't know why they ever do this. And uh, if you're a teacher, help me. Like, leaves the room, and as soon as that door clicks shut, you hear the whispers. Hey, what you get on question 13? And the guy's like, seven miles per hour. I don't know, physics. And, and then you're like, I got the sun. I'm really confused here. Like, th this makes no sense to me. Uh, and then that, like, whisper becomes a chatter, and then the door opens, and shh, right? So as soon as that authority figure exits the room, uh, all, all rules are out the window. All bets are off. We're going to live how we want. And I feel like this shows um, how Israel has grown. Because I feel like chapter 32, that's where they were at. 
Like, we're, God is out of the picture. We haven't seen Moses for over a month, so we're just going to have to take care of things on our own. And this shows us, even one chapter later, the progress that they have made in their understanding of God. They have enough sense to say that, okay, last time we were left on our own, we didn't do too well. Like, it took us 40 days, but we put all of our treasures into this pot, and Aaron said, out popped the cow, just magically, like, boom, out popped. So they had enough sense to say that, hey, when we were left to our own devices, we did not do very well. And we don't want to go through that again because we'd be in big, big trouble. And it seems to me that God is testing his people to see their response to him uh, saying, that, man, I'm not going to be among you. I'm not going to be in your presence. And they mourned over this. This was bad, bad, bad news. And verse 5 says, For the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. You're stubborn. You don't care. You won't move. You won't repent. You're stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. If you're a parent, have you ever had to step out of the room for away from a kid, away from your child who's misbehaving, disobeying? Maybe you have. I felt like that sometimes as a kid, like, Mom just disappeared in the middle of this. I don't know. Uh, you may feel that frustration. You may feel what God is feeling. And remember last week we talked about whenever we see God, um, almost like, uh, like if you haven't read the Bible, you might say that he's irrational. He's acting um, wrathful or even emotional. That's not something that should repel us from God. It's an invitation to relate to him, right? We've got to understand God. He comes to us and meets us um, in ways that we can understand. It's an invitation to relate to him. But what is happening here is that they are mourning the possibility of losing God's presence. They're not, like, God hasn't left yet. He's still there. But they're mourning the possibility that this could happen, the possibility that he would withdraw from them. And I wonder today, have you ever been in that place? Have you ever felt or, or mourned the possibility of God leaving? Another way to ask that, if, if everything in your life, if everything about God, God, the things of God were removed from your life, would your life look different? Would something change in your life? Would people notice in a negative way, hey, you've lost something. There's something about you that is missing. So if we look and evaluate our life and we can look at, okay, we've got, we've got the house, we've got the car, we've got the job, we've got the finances, the security system, like everything is great, but we don't have the Lord. The text is saying that they removed their ornaments. What does that mean? It means they took the things that were uh, shiny, distracting, made them beautiful, things that they thought they couldn't live without. They took them away. In fact, they stripped them off, got rid of them, and left them behind because they knew that these are the kind of things that will pull us away from God and get in the way of his presence in life. In chapter 32, it is those exact things, those like jewelry and treasures that they cast into this, uh, that they made the calf out of. So they have enough sense to know, okay, these things that we're treasuring, they could, they could cause us to sin. Or they are sin themselves if we're not treasuring uh, the Lord. So we need to take a step back and evaluate our life in this mindset. What are the things in my life, what are the things in your life that I know are not going to lead me to the throne of the Lord? 
They're going to take me away. Things that are not of Jesus. Could be people we hang out with, people we spend our time with. Like, we become who we hang out with. I think I say this every other Wednesday to the students. Like, you become who you hang out with. You become just like the people you spend time with. This is so true. And we've got to evaluate who that is, where we are, the things that we are involved in. And usually, by the way, when we think about these shiny things, they are things that we think we can't live without. And that is exactly the quickest thing that becomes an idol in your life is something that you think you can't live without and you've got to prioritize. You've got to make time can quickly become an idol and something that pulls you away from the presence of God. So something I notice Israel is doing that we can actually uh, model and mirror almost is they're doing a couple things. Number one, they had a desire for the Lord to be among them. A rich desire for God to be present in their life. But number two is they repented. They removed the ornaments. They removed the jewelry and the treasures that caused them to sin. That they remembered had caused them to sin in chapter 32. So they had the desire but, and they also repented. I feel like this is where we get hung up some of the time. Right there in those, the relationship between those two things, we get hung up. Because we have the excitement, the passion for everything that God's doing in and around our lives. Like you hear a story, you hear a sermon, or maybe like for me, it's a really good worship song. Something that really stirs my affections for Jesus. Like just really feeling on the mountaintop, uh, high, uh, on like just feeling really excited about something that God is doing in your life. Right? We, have, we can have that excitement. But if we have that and we don't have a push towards repentance, towards removing sin, removing unholiness and unrighteous things from our life, like excitement alone does not equal revival. Passion alone does not equal revival. Revival comes after the shedding of sin, after the removing of sin. So if you want to see revival in your home, revival in your workplace, revival in your city, and even in our country and beyond, like that doesn't come just from being excited about what God's doing. We've got to respond to that desire by stripping ourselves of what is sinful, of what leads us down paths of unrighteousness, getting rid of those, getting rid of anything and everything, anything and everything that will cause you to sin, that will lead you uh, towards unrighteousness. Get rid of it. Remove it. Because here's what happens. Sin is really, really, really good at muting the voice of God. Not just turning it down. Completely pushing mute on it. Sin mutes the voice of God. And it, it does this so effectively to the point that we have deceived ourselves in thinking that God doesn't speak to us anymore. That's how quiet it can make the voice of God. This is what sin does when actually what we're doing is we're just stuffing our ears with junk. Just overloading our brains and overloading our minds and our hearts with things that are completely uh, mute the voice of God and cloud his presence. So this is what sin does. It does it really, really well. But what's really great in the next few verses is we're going to see that this kind of radical repentance and radical confession of sin and pruning, like we talked about earlier, is what makes us distinct from 
the world. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But I want to point out something in verse 7 through 11. Because it seems to be kind of an oddly placed paragraph. So we're going to read about the tent of meeting. And this is not the tabernacle. Like we're going to read, like that will come in just a few chapters. The tabernacle, which represents God's presence among the camp. And that, that's going to eventually kind of morph into the temple. That's not what we're talking about. This is more of a personal tent that Moses sets up outside of the camp. But it's open to everybody. Listen to verse 7. Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And later on we read that like, this is where Moses would speak to God face to face. So we've got this place, a tent, where God will speak, not only to Moses, it's open to everybody. Anybody who wants to seek the Lord can go. It's available to them. Two things I'll highlight from that, those few verses. Um, in chapter 32, these people are dancing around a golden calf that was made by their own hand. Completely entrenched in idolatry. I know that last night was probably not ideal for a lot of us. Um, the strows are down. I, and people do weird things. I get that. And I was like, you know, the rally caps, like I, I, I believed for two seconds. But um, maybe they'll come back. Who knows tonight. But uh, tonight or last night, last week, even in a season, you may be in the trenches of sin. But here is the truth. In this passage, in this, this kind of chapter, it's a whole chapter about whether or not God's presence is going to be with them. But here we have this passage about, hey, yeah, God is present. He is not left. There is still help from above, and he still has a piece of himself in the camp. So you may have been rich in sin, entrenched in sin last night, but here in this morning, be reminded that the heart of God is still available to you. Wide open. His arms are wide open to receive you, and there's no probationary period. There's no question and answer tests you've got to fill out, like, it's only grace. That's what God is saying. And I feel like this is a reminder in this chapter where things kind of feel like we're on the rocks. God's saying, hey, just by the way, I haven't totally left. I have not abandoned you. There's still help available to you. I also feel like those verses are foreshadowing what is to come in verse uh, 12. So let's read verses 12 through 17 together. Moses says to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. Remember, we've seen God say, Take your people away. This is like, take those people. Take your people. And Moses is reminding God, hey, this is still your people. Verse 14, and he said, God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. 
So here is another moment, a historic moment, really, of Moses interceding with God on behalf of his people. We saw this in chapter 32, and here he is doing it again. He's interceding, and God says, remember 32, he said, I'm going to consume you, and I'm just going to start over with Moses. But Moses says, no, like, in fact, instead of doing that, take me out instead. Offering himself, right? And that points us towards Jesus. That's what we talked about last week. You can go watch that if you need to. Um, But this is what Moses is doing. He's interceding on behalf of his people. And remember what God has said in this passage. Like, I'll give you the promised land. I'll defeat your enemies. You'll have peace from them. I'll, see, I'll even give you an angel as a guide to send you, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses comes back and says, God, remember who you are. And remember who we are. We are your people. You have found favor on us. And God finally says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. But then Moses double-checks him. He's like, no, 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 God, like, I'm not going if you don't go with us. We're not going if you don't come with us. We're going to stay. We're going to park right here. Moses is like double-checking God. And I found a really crazy word that I think might help us out with that. The word is uh, importunate. Can you say that with me? Importunate. It's a hard word to say. Let's try it one more time. Importunate. It's spelled really weird, and I could have put it on the screen, but I didn't. And what this word means is this. Uh, persistence to the point of annoyance. And I feel like this is sort of what Moses is doing. Persisting with God, making sure, double-checking, triple-checking, that he's going to come with them to the promised land. He's not going to withdraw his presence. And this made me think, how many times have we gone to pray about something and we only lift it up one little time? And we never return back to it and say, God, it's me again. Like, we just do it one little time. Like, can God answer that prayer? Totally. He can meet that need even without our prayers, honestly. But how much faith, how much trust in God does it show if we're only willing to pray about something one time? How much care, how much desire does it show if we only lift it up once. Sometimes God wants more than just to meet our needs. He wants to show us how much we need him. And sometimes he doesn't answer a prayer how we want him to answer it. Sometimes he answers it no. Sometimes he answers it yes. Sometimes he answers it in unexpected ways. But always he is trying to build up in us a trust in his ways and a, um, a, a, almost a disreliance on us, on our ways forsaking our ways and trusting in his. He wants to show us how much we need him. And I feel like that, God's response here, shows us the very heart of what's going on in this passage. It's not about the places he leads us. It's not about the things that he gives us. God is the actual treasure. God is the treasure. God is the ultimate supreme value. God is The treasure. And I think that understanding this truth, that God is the ultimate treasure, it can transform your faith this morning. Totally, radically transform your faith. Why? Because understanding that God is the ultimate treasure, not only understanding it, believing that, 
and living that. God is the ultimate treasure. It means that something else will not be. It means that nothing else can be your ultimate treasure. And this is where sin comes from, right? At the very heart of it, I think sin comes from us having this belief that there's something else better out there for me. And I'm going to go and chase that. There's a better treasure for me. So let me just place God on the shelf for this moment or even for a season. And I'm going to go chase after this kind of fulfillment. No, no, no. God is the ultimate treasure. God is the treasure. And what is the substance of this treasure? Well, the first thing we see in verse 14, God says that my presence will go with you and I will give you what? I'll give you rest. I will give you rest. Um, I love this idea of uh, biblical rest and biblical peace. A little different than Sabbath uh, that we're talking about here. It is not the absence of conflict. It's not the absence of trouble. What it is is the ability to remain peaceful and the ability to uh, remain restful in the midst of conflict, in the midst of trouble. Like that's what the presence of God actively does in a believer doesn't promise to save us from conflict. John, John 16, 33, that Jesus promises there's going to be troubles, there's going to be trials. Take heart, though. He has overcome the world. Like, nothing's going to overcome us because he has overcome the world. And this is kind of where we are living. Like, God's going to give us rest. It's not the absence of conflict. It's the ability to remain hopeful and faithful and trust in God's deliverance. So he's going to give us rest, but he'll also, he's going to set us apart. He's going to set us apart. If you read in verse uh, 16, how should we know that we have found that, um, how, sh- how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going, and listen to this, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? He's going to set us apart. Moses wants something for the people of Israel. He wants something special. He wants to, um, the world to see that God is with his people in a special and unique way. We're different from Egypt. We're different from Canaan. We're different from Assyria. We are different. We're set apart. Why? Because we have the actual presence of God in and among and around us. Not just this thing we pray to, not just this statue we pray to. It's the actual, it's his actual presence working in and around us. It's a relationship with Yahweh that separates them from the world because God is moving around them. And this is our story in Exodus. So, so what does this look like for us? If God is on the move in your life today... If God is on the move in your life, you will look different than the people around you. This is what it means to be a Christian, that you are set apart. You look different. You have different goals, different desires, different priorities. And at the top of that list is this, a active relationship with the living God. We are set apart. We look different from the world. And it's not a set of uh, rules that sets us apart. It's not a test you've taken that sets you apart. It's not your attendance record at Sunday school that sets you apart. It must be the active presence of God, the Holy Spirit working and shaping 
you um, and transforming you that makes you different. So look in verse 17 now. The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So God finally says, All right, Moses, you win. You've double-checked me. You've come at me like, okay, you went. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to give you my presence, and I know you by name. But then, in verse 18, Moses asks an extremely bold, 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 bold question. It took guts. Moses says in verse 18, please show me your glory. Let's read verse 18 and on. Moses says, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And I like that verse because I feel like God, he's been, he's been conversing, he's been interacting with, with Moses. But here in this moment, he reminds Moses, Hey, by the way, I'm still God. I'm still in charge here. That's a good reminder, if you like. Verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft on the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. So Moses, up until this point, has had quite a lot of interaction with God, right? I mean, think about his journey. He is, he's spent a ton of time in God's presence, more than anybody, really, up until this point. And he's just had a ton of interaction with God. But the key thing to notice in verse 18 is that he still wants more. He still wants to see more of God. He still wants to know him more deeply. And this should be... A quality that is true for every single Christian today. That we want to see more of God in our life. We want to see more of his hand and his provision and his um, activity in our lives. And we want to see him working in the people around us. We can be importunate about that. We can be persistent in asking God to show up and asking him to show himself in even everyday situations. And to show his goodness like he did here with Moses. And if we keep going, we'd have to get into uh, chapter 34, and we'll, we'll read these next few verses. But I feel like in this passage, God is saying, hey, you cannot handle my whole glory. It's like a few good men. Like, you can't handle the truth. Like, God is saying, you cannot take it. So I'm going to show you just a sliver. Go behind this rock, look through a crack, and you can see my back. You can't see my face. You cannot hold on to my entire face because it would uh, kill Moses he would not survive it he cannot see his face God's glory is too much to look at but fast forward to now fast forward to Jesus Jesus invites us to fully look upon him today he doesn't give us a hidden version or a fraction of himself it's the whole deal wide open arms that's the invitation from Christ to look fully upon him, as we read in 2 Corinthians, uh, with unveiled face. No restrictions. Total, total and complete 
glory. I want to read you a few verses uh, that I think will be helpful for us as we close this morning, um, and then we'll, uh, we'll leave this place. Uh, but um, look at John 1, 14. It says that, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1, 2 through 3, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God. In John 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples, verse 9. He says, he who sees me, he who sees my face, sees the Father. Jesus is not this fraction of God. He's not just a picture of God. He is the exact nature. He is God himself. And Jesus has given you an invitation to know him and to know him fully. We don't have to look at his back through a sliver and a rock. We get to see his face completely. And God is the ultimate treasure. This kind of swirled around in my head this week. Like if we're saying that God is the ultimate treasure, then Jesus in all the radiance of his glory, like Hebrews said so beautifully, the radiance of his glory. Like you think of a sun, like the sun rays beaming down. It's the tangible evidence, like just how you can feel the heat from the sun. Jesus is the presence of God in your life. That's the radiance of God's glory through Christ. But Jesus, and hear this, Jesus did not just come so that we can have salvation, but in salvation we get to have Christ. God is the ultimate treasure. He gives us things. He gives us rest. He gives us provision. He gives us peace. And he even transforms our hearts, our minds, and our souls. That is wonderful. But the ultimate gift, the ultimate treasure is God himself. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the fact that you, you are the radiance of the Father's glory. You uh you come into broken places. You are a light in the darkness. And God, even you use us to be lights in the darkness. And I pray that that would be true for all of us, that we would be completely and totally set apart from the world that you have placed us in, the world that you have commissioned us in. We would be set apart uh, for the expansion of your kingdom and for your praise and for your glory. So as we leave this place and we head into whatever this week holds for us, I pray that that would be true, that we would be set apart. Even tonight in our neighborhoods, meeting neighbors for the first time, God, would you um, show your glory through us, shine through us, around us, out of our homes, so that we may be able to bless some. So uh, thank you, for, Lord, for this passage, for this story. I pray that we would uh, take it with us. And all these things in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.